This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. And as our name says, the human side of healthcare, we're going to dig down into some of the great work that's being done to help people within our community. We're delighted that we've got Mike Pasaglini, the CEO of St. Vincent de Paul Pharmacy, with us today. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Steve. It's uh, it's an honor, and, and I'm very happy to be on your show today. So for our listeners out there, many of them may not know, can you explain what St. Vincent de Paul Pharmacy is? Sure. The, the St. Vincent de Paul Pharmacy is a freestanding charitable pharmacy. That is, we give free medications to people who meet the qualifications of being uninsured and below 300% of the federal poverty level. As long as you have a valid prescription and you live in Texas, we can help you get your medications for free. That's interesting. So if you live in Texas, it's not just in Dallas County, it's if you live in Texas, you can service if if all criteria are met. That's correct. That's correct. You need to be a Texas resident, and as long as you meet that criteria, we can help you. You know, Mike, in your mind as CEO, what makes this pharmacy so unique, and why in your heart is it so special for our community? Well, you know, uh, we saw this need Uh, Several years ago, uh, the fundamental way in which we engage with people in need is through our home visit teams, where we go into the home and try to understand the basic uh, emergency assistance need that's going on. Invariably, we would find many times people would be foregoing their medications as a way to save some money and would end up either getting sick, you know, not being able to work, going into the hospital and getting a hospital bill, and, and they would come to us for this emergency need. So we established the freestanding charitable pharmacy idea as a way to serve free medications, go after the root cause for that emergency assistance. And the need is great. We're seeing about one in seven Texans are in this category of need where they're uninsured and they're below 300% of the federal poverty level. And this uh, volume of activity is just continuing to grow, and it's serving this great need, especially within our local community. You know, you mentioned uh, some of the criteria already. You have to be in Texas below 300% of the federal poverty level. Are there other qualifications that who really qualifies to meet the need for this free medication? Yeah, no, you've you've hit on it. Three of the four requirements, you know, uninsured, below 300% of the federal poverty level, a Texas resident, and the fourth requirement is a valid prescription. So if you go to, let's say, a clinic, and that particular doctor writes a prescription for your particular situation, that prescription can be sent to our uh, pharmacy and filled by our pharmacy and then courier serviced back to that patient's home address so that they don't have to worry about going to a particular location to pick it up. So that is essentially the the requirement process that we have 
for getting those free medications. You know, Mike, that's remarkable. You've removed so many barriers, especially delivering that medication back to the patient where they don't have to drive and pick it up another location. For our listeners out there who are hearing this, how do they get in touch with you? Well, there's a, there's a number of ways. And the, the first one is on the internet. Obviously, if you go to our website, uh, svdpdallas.org slash pharmacy, that's one way to get in touch with us. Another way is to call a pharmacy. Uh, that's 469-232-9902. We're also located, our physical pharmacy is located on 5750 Pineland Drive, suite number 280. We're open Monday through Friday, 9 to 2 p.m. There's also a number of clinics that we operate with today uh, that automatically can send the prescriptions directly to us to be filled and then mailed back to them. So there's a variety of ways that people can take advantage of this uh, opportunity to get their medications for free. You know, to help our listeners understand the real thought that went into this and your true mission You were nice enough to invite me when you first opened this location. Tell our listeners how long you've been in operation. Yeah, we uh, (laughs) thankfully, we did that grand opening with you participating, which was a wonderful event. But that was in September of 2019, and that we had been open, uh, sort of a trial run for the last six months prior to that, and we did a whopping 800 prescriptions. That first year after that formal grand opening, we did 9,000 prescriptions. And then last year, we did 17,500. And this year, we're on track to do 30,000 prescriptions. So the, the opportunity to get medications is going up dramatically. People are taking advantage of the service. And we don't see it ending anytime soon. That growth will continue on that exponential path. You know, those are remarkable statistics, and what a great service you're doing, especially in Texas, where, as you know, 5 million people are uninsured. This is just a blessing to help many of these people with pharmacy. Yeah, absolutely. As you now look in your crystal ball and project the future, where do you see this going in the next five years? We anticipate growing this pharmacy to become a statewide pharmacy from its current location. With our courier service that we have that can be delivering pharmaceutical medications overnight to a person's address, we can engage with other clinics across the state, have them send their prescriptions to us, and actually have them filled. So that 5 million people you referred to, if you assume, let's say, half of those have needs for free medications, uh, those kinds of prescriptions, that's still 2.5 million people. And we can serve that population from this single pharmacy over the next several years. We're on a path to grow the operation. We're in the midst of a capital campaign to raise the monies to help us get through the next four years as we continue to grow it beyond just the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So look for more expansion over time and more people being served and hopefully healthier working and, you know, making a better Texas in, in the process. 
We're listening to Mike Pazaglini, CEO of St. Vincent de Paul Pharmacy, about this incredible program that Steve is affecting the economy in North Texas. It certainly is, Thomas. People that, even if they're below the federal poverty level, many are working. And if they're sick and miss work, they don't get paid. And for the people they work for, they have to find substitute workers. So a healthy workforce improves the overall economy. And if you missed some of this conversation, the entire show is on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare, on all the major podcast players. When we come back, how you can be involved. More with Mike Pezzaglini of the St. Vincent de Paul Pharmacy next on The Human Side of Healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back. You may not have known that free medications are available in North Texas to those who fit the requirements that we mentioned in our last segment. We're talking with Mike Pazaglini, who is CEO of St. Vincent de Paul Pharmacy a wonderful program that is putting medications in the hands of the most needy among us. Now, here are Steve and Mike with more. You know, Mike, I've been very familiar with your organization since the inception. In fact, you invited me over for kind of the grand opening, and it was a real honor to participate. And I know that people volunteer. I know that you raise funds through various methods And many people may not need your service, but they want to help. They want to support your mission. I understand you even have a capital campaign that's underway. How can our listeners who want to contribute and support your wonderful mission get involved? I appreciate that question. Um, I can tell you that during the pandemic, people's generosity uh, has been amazing, truly amazing, and not just for St. Vincent de Paul, but across the board. I think I heard on your station this week that, uh, that we saw an increase in charity to the point of being $470 billion last year, a record amount of money. Uh, that needs to continue for us to continue our operation on this uh, free medications, this charitable pharmacy. And they can go to our website, svdpdallas.org slash donate and make a donation, whether it's $5 or it's $5,000. Help us uh, raise this money to keep this uh, operation moving forward over the next four years. We expect to deliver about 270,000 prescriptions in the next four years. And that will have a tremendous impact on our community its health, and where we're going in the state of Texas. A few weeks ago, we had Mark Cuban on this show to talk about uh, different types of heart conditions, but he mentioned that he was working on a pharmacy that he was going to put in deep alum to help people that really were uninsured, people that were low income. Is this something that you could partner with him on, or is that separate and distinct? Well, no, it's a great question. In fact, um, we are currently researching that very topic. Um, We have a a capstone project with the University of Dallas, and it's occurring this in the summer semester. They are actually researching uh, what is being provided by Amazon.com's pharmacy program and Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Pharmacy. 
researching both of those to understand the ins and outs of those uh, offerings to see if there is a partnership or relationship that we can engage with them uh, in regards to our program of providing free medications. So I would, I would say more to come or watch this space in terms of where we go with that. But as we learn more about their program, then yes, we're going to be open to uh, other ways we can collaborate and address this need. Mike, as you look over the hill and you have your planning meetings and just your coffee conversations, what do you see ahead for the pharmacy and for this kind of pharmaceutical distribution? Well, first, I'd be remiss in not acknowledging the help we've gotten from the pharmaceutical companies to even do this. Our program is built on the, uh, the fact that as they produce overruns of medications, they're provided to a dispensary. It's the Dispensary of Hope, and it's a national dispensary where we pay for the transportation costs to come to us and then we're able to distribute those medications to the people who need them. So there's that sort of benefit, if you will, that the pharmaceutical companies provide. In addition, they also offer discounted programs uh, where we can purchase medications to increase our formulary that allows the, the doctors to write more prescriptions to us, whether it be behavioral health medications or it's Pick your favorite or the most common illness we have out there and, and those particular medications could be uh, purchased and, and put into our formulary to address that need. I will tell you, one of the things that excites me about where we're going is on the homelessness or homeless topic, uh, and that is we're working out arrangements with homeless facilities whereby they have someone who visits a doctor at their facility, the prescription gets sent to us and we provide the prescription back to the facility who houses it for them in lockers. And then they're able to stay on their medications and go to that facility on a regular basis. And our hope is that that homeless person now is more the probability that homeless person leaving homelessness and getting, getting into a home, getting into a job, getting out of that situation has gone up dramatically. It's For me, it seems like it's an answer to that question, that this offers us real insight to a, a problem that no one's had a really good answer to for a long, long time. That is so encouraging what you are doing there. Tell people about the organization itself. Tell us about St. Vincent's. St. Vincent de Paul is a society that has existed since the 1830s. It was started in Paris, France by a college student, and since then it has grown to a worldwide organization. We're in over 150 countries. There's over a million members of, that are part of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Our focus is on, to, is on alleviating suffering of people, regardless of their circumstances, uh, and they call us for help, whether it be rent, utilities, food, clothing, whatever. We are also trying to go after root causes. So we address free medications as a root cause. We address payday and auto title loans that people get into and never can escape, and they begin falling into poverty. We offer a low-interest loan, 3% over 12 months. That allows them to escape that payday loan and get back on track, get back on their financial feet. We offer after-school programming where we can teach kids 
uh, math and reading skills, help them in the English language, which a lot of their parents can't help them with. And we offer a scholarship program that gets them into private schools and now into college. So those are just some examples of the way the Society of St. Vincent Paul has operated over the last, what is it, 177 years, 187 years. Uh, it's an amazing organization, and it's all volunteers. We have something like 750 volunteers in the North Texas area alone. That is truly amazing. I know Steve has his connections with you, and how I first found the organization was taking things up to the thrift shop in Plano. Uh, yeah. How many locations do you have around the Metroplex? Well, the the thrift store, uh, we have two locations, one in Plano and one in uh, Northwest Highway near Love Field, uh, very near Love Field. In fact, if you go and visit, you watch the planes come right over your head and land on the runway. Um, as far as our other locations, we're organized by conferences, which are centered around a parish. We're in 40 of those across the nine counties that make up the Diocese of Dallas. So we're located in those those particular areas, and our volunteers operate from those locations as well. We have the St. Vincent Center in Lancaster, which is another location providing services there, including the Jan Pruitt Pantry, which is a food pantry in cooperation with Catholic Charities and with the North Texas Food Bank. And um, we have our pharmacy, which is uh, on Pineland Drive near uh, in the Vickery Meadow area. You truly are doing the Lord's work and you're not preaching it, you're living it. And that's beautiful. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about a great organization. I'm proud to be a part of it. That's Mike Pazaglini, the CEO of St. Vincent de Paul Pharmacy. What an amazing program. Mike, thanks for being with us. Well, Steve, it's been a while since we've mentioned the C word. You're correct. COVID-19. I must say, Thomas, I know people are ready for everything to be back to normal, but it really isn't. Let me explain to you why. We still have 300 people in our hospitals that have COVID-19. I talked to the medical professionals this week, and Thomas, all of those people were not vaccinated. Yes, you heard me right. They were not vaccinated. It's a very rare occurrence for someone to be in our hospital with COVID-19 that's been vaccinated. And we really have leveled out on people getting vaccinations. About 50% of Texans still are not fully vaccinated. And here's the problem. That Delta virus from India is growing here in the North Texas area. It's increasing every day. It's extremely contagious. So I respect people's opinion on what they want to do about vaccine, and I'm not here to preach. I'm just here to tell you, the people in our hospitals that are very sick now were not vaccinated. So please, at least consider getting your vaccination so we can tamp this virus down once and for all. Thank you for that update, Steve. And when we come back, we're now going to shift up to Medical City Children's Hospital to hear about a miracle. Dr. Vivian Demas was with us last fall. She's coming back to tell us how they are saving lives in kids who have heart defects at or even before they're born. Amazing. Next on the Human Side of Healthcare. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. We're going to have back with us Dr. Vivian Demas. And Dr. Demas has been on our show before, and she absolutely was terrific. So we wanted to bring her back. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Demas. Thank you, guys, and thank you for having me back. Congenital heart disease is probably one of the most common birth defects in the United States. It's my understanding it affects over 40,000 infants every year. What specific challenges do congenital heart patients face, you know, when it comes to their lifelong care? Um, yeah, so that's actually fairly accurate. It is it is one of the most common congenital defects that we see. And I think for parents who didn't have a child with congenital heart disease, when they when they do have one, I think they're pretty surprised to realize how many infants are affected. You know, fortunately, the majority of those defects are something that we can manage uh, either conservatively, meaning uh, with medical therapy and watching them, or something that we can actually repair. And that tends to be things that are, are fairly simple, like holes in the heart, where once we close them, we consider that patient to be cured. Uh, where it gets a little bit challenging are the patients with more complex congenital heart disease where they're subjected to multiple surgeries over the course of a lifetime to continue to manage their defects. And so for some of the patients with the most complex disease, it's a minimum of three surgical procedures, usually in the first three to four years of life. So the first one immediately after birth, and then the next one still as a, as a young infant. And then again, when they're about three to four years old, however, uh, they're in lifelong follow-up and they continue to have multiple procedures related to their congenital heart disease. And then the patients who have valve disease or in some patients who have no valve, uh, we end up following those patients along and they need multiple surgeries or catheterization procedures to address those ongoing defects too. So it really is a lifelong need for care. And I, and I think the biggest challenge right now is that the congenital heart population, the adult congenital heart population, so patients uh, who are now 18, which is actually a larger growing group than even the infants, uh, it's hard for them to find care when they become older. There aren't that many of us who take care of patients with adult congenital heart disease. And uh, so I think that they struggle finding um, the right doctor to take care of them. And then some of them struggle with with obtaining insurance with having pre-existing conditions. So that's uh, prior to some of the recent legislation that was really a large hurdle once they were no longer students on their on their parents insurance so they've got a lot of challenges you know recently at medical city dallas you deployed a new fda approved technology and it was designed as an alternative to open heart surgery for patients that needed pulmonary valve replacement to our listeners, can you explain what this technology is and how it works? Sure. Typically, for this particular subset of patients, they have a valve that is either non-functioning, so it's typically leaking and, and not working adequately, or in some patients, when they had their their initial repair of their congenital heart disease, they actually cut that valve out because it was too small and didn't allow enough blood flow to go out to the lungs. And so they live 
years and years with a valve that leaks and eventually it takes its toll uh, on the heart and then they need placement of a pulmonary valve. Uh, prior to this FDA approved valve, the only option was an open heart surgery and we describe open heart surgery it is exactly that. It means opening up the breastbone uh, and going on a heart lung bypass machine and actually opening up that pulmonary artery and placing the valve in surgically and then uh, closing the chest back up and so obviously that's a pretty invasive treatment. The alternatives now, which uh, this was really the last group of patients who have not been able to benefit from valve technology. So they were, there was no valve that fit in these large pulmonary arteries until this valve was approved. And now what we can do is actually uh, over a wire that we thread up through the vein in their leg, take a valve that's on a stent that collapses so it can be small enough to go uh, in through the vein in the leg and we thread it up under x-ray into the heart and we're able to actually deploy a valve that way inside that main pulmonary artery. Uh, and then when we're finished, we, you know, just basically put a dressing on the leg and, and we watch them overnight in the hospital and they're able to go home the next day. So it really is a completely different experience for these patients now. You mentioned open heart surgery and when it's less invasive, you kind of take the open out of open heart surgery. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so like I was saying uh, previously, when we when you open up the chest, the, you know there are a lot of things that go along with that. Um, every patient that has had that gets this procedure has had a previous operation, so each subsequent procedure carries additional risk: risk of bleeding, uh, difficulty getting through the scar tissue to get in, and and they're lengthy procedures. And so obviously the recovery from that is also uh, much more lengthy. And so when we talk about taking the open out of the open heart surgeries, you know you're talking about you know no longer being in the ICU you're talking about no chest tubes uh, a lot easier recovery no big incisions and so it really is a completely different experience and I, I think most of these patients have had multiple procedures in the past and so these these risks continue to become additive over the course of their life and so I think not only offering them a less invasive option uh, it's also in some ways a little less risky in terms of the reoperation risks that, that the surgeons face. It's a tough job for them on these repeat operations. You know, children in many cases are a little fearful to be in the hospital. Even sometimes adults feel the same way. With children being afraid sometimes when they're in the hospital, what does this procedure mean related to their recovery time? So, you know, it's interesting because it seems like the, the older the patient would get, the more it would understanding they would be of these procedures and you could have conversations with them that would put their fears at rest. But it seems like, uh, you know, once you get to toddlers who are just scared of being around people they don't know and, and having things done to them, when you get to these older teenagers and young adults, they can rationalize all the risks. And so there is a real fear. There's a fear of not surviving. There's a fear of, you know, someone cutting their chest open. There's a fear of being in the ICU with all the tubes and lines. And so they, it, it really is a very stressful uh, an anxiety-provoking situation for these kids. And, and they have nightmares and they don't want to be here. And I think it's really just as stressful for the parents who are having to expose their children to this. You know, we, we have to put these valves in. We have to do these surgeries. We have to take care of these patients. And, and so I think for, uh, for my older children, uh, definitely being able to explain to them that how much more simple these types of procedures are, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot less stressful for them. Uh, and I think it 
it really has been such a blessing to be able to offer that to this these patients because I think if you were getting, given the option of a bandage over your leg and home the next day versus having to go through a full open heart surgery in the ICU and the recovery it takes, I think most people would choose the less invasive option. You know, I was curious, when you mentioned congenital heart disease as one of the most common type of birth defects, is there research or is there data to reflect if a child has a congenital heart disease and they have that birth defect, does that tend to be hereditary? So there, there is a lot of research, and there are certainly types of congenital heart disease where we find a genetic link. And so, yes, there, there is a chance that this will continue to be passed down through the subsequent generations. But having said that, it's interesting that the risk is really only slightly increased over the regular population. So while there is an increased risk, uh, it's not significantly over the general population for this just happening spontaneously. So, Dr. Demas, I'm of that age where grandchildren are now part of my life. And I could only imagine when a family has a new baby in their life and then all of a sudden there's a problem. How do you handle that with families? So, it really depends on, on where you are in the process. Now, ultrasound technology has really improved to the point where uh, we're now able to make fetal diagnoses. So we're able to detect um, most of these heart problems. If the mom is receiving care and it was detected on a screening ultrasound by their obstetrician, uh, they will then refer them to us for fetal echocardiogram. And at that point in time, we're, we're typically able to make this diagnosis. And so while that is shocking, it does allow the family some time to prepare and to discuss the long-term outcomes and, and to give them an expectation for those patients that we will be able to observe versus the patients that will need to have open heart surgery in the first few days of life. And I think having the ability to have time to digest that is really helpful. The, the ones I think we struggle with the most are the surprise diagnosis. So there was no knowledge at all along the way that there was anything wrong with the baby. And then they find out through screening after the baby was born that there is some sort of significant congenital heart defect. And I think when you take all the emotions of, of the pregnancy and the delivery and, and all that goes along with that, and then you, and then you add this on top of it, I think it becomes an exceedingly stressful situation. And, and what our job is now is to really try to guide the parents through what the process looks like. And we're fortunate now with the, with the types of surgery and the advances in care, we expect these patients, 95% will live until they're 18 years of age and so, or live to 18 years of age and beyond. So the survivability into adulthood at this point is excellent. And so our main focus is to do our best to explain this to the family families uh, and then provide the reassurance that they need because if it's unexpected, it's, it's even harder than it is when it was expected and you've had time to process it and ask the questions along the way and, and meet the people uh, who were going to take care of your patients. We'll do fetal consults with the surgeons or, or myself with, as an interventionalist. So we have a, an opportunity to set a, up a rapport with the family and answer all their questions and give them time to think about it and come back and ask more questions. And so I think that fetal diagnosis has helped us a lot, not only with the management of them, but also with the preparation for the families. 
Can you believe what we're hearing? Dr. Vivian Demas from Medical City Children's Hospital saving kids' lives right here in North Texas. She's going to tell us just how pre they can go when we come back, and it's going to surprise you. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. And we're back with Dr. Vivian Demas from Medical City Children's Hospital talking about going into premature infants and actually doing procedures on their hearts. To you and me, this seems virtually impossible, and yet Dr. Demas does it every day. So, Dr. Demas, how far into a pregnancy can you start to see possible heart defects? Uh, we start to see things around the 20-week ultrasound. So uh, certainly, you know, when they start doing the 20-week ultrasound, we start to uh, be able to notice some of these defects. And then usually uh, if they get further along, uh, you know, past 20 weeks, uh, then it becomes even easier. That is simply amazing. I've got to ask you, what's the youngest infant you've ever performed surgery on? Oh, my. So uh, we have done procedures on preterm infants. I believe the youngest was either 26 or 27 weeks gestation. So that would be about uh, 10 to 12 weeks early and weighing about 800 grams. Wow. Unbelievable. How did this new procedure originate and how did you get involved and when did you bring it to this hospital? The need for pulmonary valves has been around for congenital heart disease for some time. There is a large population of patients who have either a dysfunctional or, or no valve that, uh, in, the, in that pulmonary artery, which is the valve that goes out to the lungs, takes the blue blood out to the lungs. And over time, the patients have poor exercise tolerance, and it, it, it causes some abnormal heart rhythms, um, and it can cause some other issues. And historically, they've required multiple pulmonary valve replacements. And what we know as a community is that with the, particularly with the adults, we've benefited a lot from the adult cardiologist who started doing catheter valve replacement in their high-risk patients on the aortic valve, which is on the opposite side. And uh, the company's understanding that there was a need and a benefit, uh, and the FDA, I will say, to give credit to the FDA, understanding that this benefits this population and really reduces the number of open heart surgeries that they have to have has helped, has worked with us. And so these companies um, have been working to develop these valves and they went through animal testing and, and, and we have to deploy them uh, in test settings. And then that's followed by clinical trials. And then ultimately uh, that clinical trial information is submitted to the FDA. And then most of these devices uh, have been FDA approved because they show great benefit with low risk. And I think that there's a lot to be said for the companies who have stuck with us to help create this technology because on a spectrum, there are so many fewer patients with congenital heart disease that will need this valve than if they made a valve for an adult population where there's, where there's many more patients who would need it. So it's a very high investment for not as high of a yield in terms of, you know, the yield for the company, but the commitment from these companies to help take care of these patients with it, with congenital heart disease is, is admirable. And, and without their partnership, I don't think we could take care of these patients in the way that we do. And how did you adopt it so quickly yourself? 
so I've been doing a lot of valve work in my time as an interventional cardiologist. And so uh, a lot of that has also been research, uh, not only just with the, the manufacturers of this valve, but with other man- valve manufacturers. And so this is a particular area of interest of mine in a place where I I have a lot of experience, and so with those relationships comes also the ability to have access to these valves. So we've participated in numerous trials uh, for valve studies and then uh, essentially parlayed that into being able to bring this to the table clinically. Congratulations. Yes, big deal. So thank you for being a leader in the Metroplex and doing that. That's great. You know, aside from the kinds of heart issues that we've been talking about with kids, just kids in general. You know, it's not something that we connect kids with heart disease. Typically, it's older folks like Steve and me (laughs) that we start to think (laughs) of things like that. So do you have any general heart tips for parents? You know, I think it's interesting because we're fortunate with children that we don't see a lot of what we call acquired heart disease. I think COVID has shed a lot of light on, on the acquired heart disease area for pediatrics when you talk about the potential for something called myocarditis with an inflamed heart or uh, how it can affect the arteries that, that supply blood to the heart. So, you know, those are the things that I don't think the general population really realized existed out in, in the community until it was brought to light by something like COVID. But those are the things that we deal with in terms of the acquired heart disease. And then the congenital we talked about. Uh, what's interesting when you think about children is that even these patients with the most severe defects, you wouldn't know it. They run and play and enjoy really a, a relatively normal quality of life aside from having to have a cardiologist as as part of their routine follow-up. And so, you know, I think when we think about heart disease, we, we divide it up into the congenital aspect and then the acquired aspect. And, and adults have most of this acquired heart disease. Uh, and children, you know, it, we recommend heart-healthy lifestyle and we recommend all the things that we recommend to adults to keep the kids healthy because it is during childhood that those things start to develop. But we're really fortunate in that most of our patients don't get that same type of heart disease. And the ones who are born with it, like I said, can enjoy a really normal quality of life with an excellent survivorship now through adulthood and be able to do all the same things that their peers can do, which is was not true a decade ago. One of the other observations that I know we all have is the number of kids that are, let's say it, they're overweight or obese. Where does that lead cardiovascular-wise down the road? So, you know, that lifestyle, uh, when you start to have issues with obesity, um, you know, you start to lay down the foundations for coronary artery disease uh, and things like high blood pressure and stroke, which then ultimately lead to the cardiac disease that most of our adult patients are dealing with. And so that that process does start as early as 8 to 10 years of age. And, and, and I think the biggest issue that we have is with this shift more towards kids being at home, playing on devices and being outside less and, and doing less out, uh, structured activities, and I think COVID really hurt us in that realm as well, is that not only are you putting yourself at risk in the future, but it's a lifestyle thing. And I, I think we can't emphasize enough that the building blocks for how you're going to live your life and, and the lifestyle that, that you will lead as an adult, those those foundations are set as a child. And they're also set based on how your parents are. You know, they emulate what they see 
And so we really recommend that everybody get out and exercise and take care of themselves. You know, it's, it's best to be healthy starting early because that will serve you through adulthood. But I do think people are surprised to find out that you can see evidence of some of this disease now not significant enough to require an intervention like a bypass or something uh, as a child. But you start to see that fat deposition already occurring in, you know, those vessels as early as 8 to 10 years of age. And so it really does affect you over the lifetime because that's, that's very early to start that process. I've got to ask you, you're treating a 14-year-old with congenital heart disease. Is it safe for them to get the COVID-19 vaccine? I don't know. That is a, that's, a, that's a complicated question and one we're getting a lot lately. So the, the COVID vaccine being administered to patients with congenital heart disease, we don't see any reason that those patients cannot get that vaccination. Some of our patients who do have the more complex congenital heart disease would be at significant risk if they actually got COVID, just like they would with flu or other anything that causes a respiratory illness. Those patients can get quite ill. And so for those higher risk patients, while we can't make those decisions for the family because those ultimately are independent decisions, we do counsel some of those higher risk patients uh, to go ahead and receive it because they would be at, at very high risk with a significant respiratory infection. But we we don't see any reason that our patients with congenital heart disease cannot receive that vaccination, and, and many, many have uh, and have done quite well with it. Steve, we kind of have a theme going in this week's show about doing the Lord's work. Exactly. Dr. Vivian Demas, Medical City Children's Hospital, thank you for taking care of our kids' hearts in such a spectacular way right here in our own town. And Steve, you just talked with her about the vaccine. I know that statistic you mentioned earlier about all of the people in the hospitals now are unvaccinated is ominous. It really is, Thomas, and I'd just be remiss. To our listeners, if you have not had your vaccine, please get the vaccine. Please do your research, make an informed decision. We can see the finish line, but we're not there yet. This has been a great show, and join us next week for the human side of healthcare.